In Revelation, we've been looking at a conclusionary word from the Lord, the Alpha, the Omega, and it is regarding what ultimately culminates in his return and our rejoining him in heaven. But there is also within the context of today's teaching an encouragement as to where we find him right now as we move ahead in the gospel account and what we're to understand and appreciate with regard to that. Prophecy concerning this event is beyond doubt. It's important that you also have an understanding about that. But I cite this because this is an important word from Second Peter, first chapter, picking it up in verse 20, knowing this first that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. Verse 21, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Really important for you to have that as an anchor verse with what we will be talking about today. Regarding this, let me get my long shirt up here. Sometimes I like my hand in my pocket, but I can't find it because my shirt's too long. Arm's too short. And so this is known as the triumphal entry, and there's reasons for that. But up to this point, as we talked about probably over a year ago, these feasts, which we have noted are very important in the exercise of the Jewish faith, but most importantly, what they are speaking about with regard to Jesus, they're right now becoming um, one after another significantly alluding to and ultimately defining what the people have been perhaps blindly celebrating. Three of them that we will recall hearing of are the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. They were to take a camping trip with the Lord. It was to put them in remembrance of being those freed from Egypt and learning to trust in God in mobile housing. Most of us are learning to trust in the Lord in mobile housing and have been there before. The other is what this week will also represent to him, which is the feast of the Passover that's going to be coming at the close of the week that we right now are entering into is the Passover feast and we take a part of that ceremonially as a church every Sunday. They had within their feast at least a minimum of five component parts to it. It was a longer meal. It's what you would find in a fine restaurant. A serving of this followed by a serving of that, the removal of what you've enjoyed and the presentation of other things yet to come. And then in the conclusion of this week, we will see as well portrayed ultimately in his resurrection as the 
celebration of the Feast of First Fruits. We are told that he is the first fruit of the dead. So those feasts are important, and this particular ride that he is taking is the fulfillment anchored, as I referred to you in Second Peter, from Daniel. Daniel would prophesy an extraordinary book of prophecy that wasn't fully satisfied until ultimately some 500 years later, about 533. There's margin of trying to figure out exactly when it was penned, but what we do know with the numbers that were given is that it was a foretelling ultimately of the next week in which after Jesus had come into Jerusalem, he would be cut off, meaning Messiah executed. That's what Daniel gives us evidence of in advance of the week that this precedes. The closure of this event in one week will represent what Daniel penned in the ninth chapter, and we'll take a peek at that briefly. But as we just ponder that coming up, this event also will be anchored with the book in Zechariah. And the reason that that's important is that precisely, almost within the same hundreds of years period, gives the specifics of Messiah coming in on a donkey, the foal of a colt. These things, because they in fact came to pass, give us great undergirding that we do not have to doubt. If they back then were able to speak by the Holy Spirit to the events that have now been satisfied according to word, then you do not have to doubt the word of God concerning the fact that both he has gone to prepare a place for you. If it were not true, he would not have told you. And the fact of the matter is, is the doctrines of the rapture have been presented. Paul was an adamant, excited uh, giver of that hope that we can say with certainty, don't doubt, it's gonna happen. God's accomplishing the things though right now that are equally important. Again, even alluding to that song that was sung. See, God's goodness is running after people. That's important because you and I even can find ourselves perhaps misunderstanding it. But there are definitely other people who have no understanding at all of God's heart. They're running in fear of judgment upon them. That can be, in fact, the nature of man. A misunderstanding of God. Oh, he's picking on me again. He's judging me. He's just waiting to take advantage of one more mess up that I, that I in fact, know I'm prone to do. And so we've been there before, right? Guilt compels us to stay distant from God because we are inherently afraid of the judgment of God. Some people can be motivated by that fear to get on their faces and to seek repentance to turn towards God and to worship Him. Others reevaluate their life 
in terms of how they can work harder for God, not how they can acknowledge God for working already on their behalf, but how they can make a change that's going to impress God by the work that they can do for God. And of course, that's altogether wrong because that's taking credit where credit is not due. It's all about the Lord receiving glory in what he has done in this act of grace. So as we move into this scene, which is historically and authentically real, let's take a look at some of the things that we do see that are important. Minding, if you would, even manners in this case, traditions, customs is what I meant, not the things that grandma would have rebuked you for, but manners and customs, this is a procession that's taking place. We could call it figuratively a parade, but it is a holy procession done in such a way that the meekness of God in Jesus is on full display. Everything that's being done for him is an expression of people that have been touched by him. They do love him, but the implication also is that in their heart, recognizing that he is Messiah, he is worthy of this pageantry that is robed in such humility and yet such excitement. There's a stir now in the city, and it is going to claim the wicked hearts of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all of those who in position should have known the day of their Messiah coming into the city and rather than refuse him, turn to him and acknowledge him. What that would have done had that been the case and Messiah had not been rejected and Jesus did not go to the cross, we can only presume would have changed our future significantly. But Jesus right now, from a back community, we could call it a bedroom community of Jerusalem, we find him here. When he had said this, he went ahead. This is chapter 19 of Luke is where I want to find ourselves right now. And it is going to be at the 28th verse. Going up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples. So he's planning his own parade. Those who right now are behind the scenes are those closest to him who know exactly what by directive is required of them. And it's interesting. See, if we were throwing a parade, we would be saying, get the banners out, get the band fired up. Let's make sure the police department cordons off any area right now that would be a disturbance to the parade. Jesus right now is concerned about one thing, and that is this particular vehicle that he will be driving in this procession. Let me give you a clue right now of perhaps how many miles that this venue will require 
from this rural area, about level, perhaps just slightly above Jerusalem from the course that he would follow approaching the Eastern Gate, probably about two miles. If this were a presidential event, then they would be rolling out a special car that would move from the inauguration point at the Capitol when that ceremony is concluded to the White House as an escort of the President of the United States. You've seen it. Thousands of people line the streets. The car is bulletproof, missile-proof. And as that procession takes place, it is to be giving tribute and honor to a duly elected officer of the nation, the executive officer of the nation. So about two miles. If Schwarzenegger had gone as far as the presidency, he would have used a Hummer. Because that was his kind of MO. He wanted something big and angry looking and don't get in my way. I heard that the Cadillac or whatever is used in the special vehicle, not the Hummer, is called the Beast. Interesting. I won't make any allusion beyond that, but that's what it's called. What Jesus has asked to be a part of this needful procession is that which we would call a beast of burden. It's a donkey. The donkey is, from the Jewish perspective, the highest-ranking animal that someone as a king would be able to ride on. It's interesting. The Romans were into big horses, stallions, white or black, it didn't matter. Haunches, flaming, you know, whatever you call those things, manes. Here and I don't have great remembrances of things like that. But from the Jewish perspective, it was what one would say, a king rides to his coronation on. Every king from David, Saul before him, continued in that vein. They weren't looking for horses. They weren't looking for carts. They were looking for a beast of burden. It is interesting, as many of you know, and I think you know this, that if you were on aerial view in a stand, whatever those things are that zoom through the air and capture so drones, if there was a drone flying over this particular beast of burden before the Lord would be put on it, there'd be a cross formed from basically the neck where the mane begins to close to its haunches, a vertical line, and then that one moves across its shoulder blades. It forms what anyone would say evaluating a cross, old rugged cross, 
this beast of burden is marked for a procession that it was designed in pageantry to deliver Messiah to his people. Nothing that anyone would take notice of except those who in religious authority would have said, wait a minute, so far we've seen this man only in sandals. What he's doing right now is making a statement about who he is. We know what he's claimed to be. He's now claiming to have spiritual and legal right to come into our city through the Eastern Gate to the Temple Mount to take his place. That's what you need to see. In this particular act, Jesus was now asserting himself because he knew that with regard to the massive amount of people that were coming into the city to celebrate Passover, there potentially would be cowardice from those who in their religious position and authority had conspired to kill him and now hesitancy. We're not going to be able to get away with this now. If we move on this now with the multitude of people that are in this city, we will not get away with it. We will be charged with crime. So Jesus right now, even according to the word, Zechariah 9.9, you can look there, is now satisfying perfectly to the day, Scripture, and precisely to the day. There was a gentleman, a British scholar, 18-something or other, 18, I'm thinking 74, penned a book. And this man, in the penning of this book, was able to solve the mathematical code that Daniel gave through the 70 weeks, in which ultimately this word delivered by Gabriel gives us a clue as to the plan of God in bringing back the nation and ultimately heralding Messiah. But Robert Anderson is his name. And I think the book that he penned was specifically 1894, as my note is showing me. The title of the book is The Coming Prince. And he, by mathematics and most importantly by the Spirit of God, was able to solve and settle this mystery that Daniel penned in the ninth chapter of his book. The reason that it's so fascinating is because it in fact, to precision, irrefutable, did happen on the day that math gave way, clear science to ultimately what this event, the triumphal entry, is saying. And then Zechariah is important because it identifies the beast that Jesus will be riding in pageantry and for the purpose in exaltation, both in humility but determination. You guys got to choose what you're going to do with me. And I'm going to force you. I know human nature. I know cowardice when I see it. You guys are cowards. You're also convicts, he would say. You've denied me, the judge of the universe, my place 
to adjudicate your life. You've denied me of that. That makes you both liars, he would say to them, and he did challenge them, and corrupt spiritually. So Jesus, in this event, is satisfying to, pres to, uh, to precision these courses of scripture. Go into the village, he says, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on it. No one has ever sat, loose it, and bring it here. This is a passage which is nuanced to saying, this guy ain't trained, he's wild, wild at heart. I'm going to subdue him by the authority of who I am. When you see cowboys on horses, they are on horses that have been broken. Most cowboys would only venture to do that if they're bronc riders, if what they do for their living is actually to break a horse or to see how long they can stand a horse that refuses to be broken. That's usually why we go to rodeos, because it's fascinating why somebody would be willing to be beaten up by such a big animal and potentially hurt in the process. Whatever it is, man seems to be highly entertained by what he can control, and other people seem to be highly entertained by will they come out of it alive. So when Jesus is doing this and making this point, it is that he is showing, I master even the toughest of animal, the most stubborn of beasts, because I am ultimately the creator of all. And that's important because, again, the ones that would be used in Jewish, Jewish pageantry back in their history, they would have been constantly trained that nothing would happen in which they would lose their footing, they would become stubborn. I mean, they were trained. Jesus takes something that by nature would both be stubborn and willing to throw him off within the first two steps that he took. He's in command of this parade. If anyone asks you concerning the animal that I'm going to have you get for me while you're loosing it, you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. This passage is important, and we've looked at it before, because the Lord has need of it. The Lord has need of us. That song that was last sung was very heart-touching, because we would say, how can he love us? I'm really more like that stubborn mule that has such rebellious tendencies that knows what I ought to be doing, but I want to do my own thing. And I don't want to be made by God, compelled by him to do anything. Most of us would say that was at one time in our life a parade that we chose not to enter into. We were content being a bystander. We were content to see who's going to get thrown in their faith. This is awesome. Not me. I'm staying back. I'll see the injury stats first. I'll see how many people God's registering for Africa. Grub worms in Australia. Crocodiles in the Indies. Whatever. I'm, I'm going to sit out this parade and wait to see 
who comes out better, me or them? Because he's the Lord and he has need of it, so most of us would say, thank you, Lord, that the day that that made sense to me because I came to my senses, I was willing to say, it's yours, I'm yours. I like that. So those who were sent went their way, found it just as he had said to them. That's an encouraging word. Just as he has said, you're going to find it. Just as he has promised, you get to claim it. Time and distance may be a part of the factor, but if you've agreed to be in that procession of faith, moving towards ultimately the work that boasts of him, whatever that may be for you, you do not have to doubt about what awaits you. They brought him to Jesus. That would be obviously this beast of burden. And they threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. This is pageantry. This is a parade in which people are donating their closest apparel, the stuff that they would say, this is precious to me. This robe that I got, these sandals that I have, the things that require of me to go up in that tree and cut down limbs. These are very symbolic, but they're basically saying, I surrender all, I surrender all, all to thee, my precious Savior, I surrender all. Even the notes that I couldn't hit. <laughs> this is a surrendering moment to those looking on. It is deep honor of sacrifice. To the Romans in garrison that may have been a part of that, they would not have been a either with the animal nor with the tokens of sacrifice. When they conquered a country, whomever they conquered, they were caged and brought in. The exacting of what they got from a people that they conquered were anything that would be cited as the spoils, anything of great value, if anything, they could have mocked this, but the Jews were thinking quite differently in the fact that they would have presumed Jesus was mocking them. The only reason they could have presumed Jesus was mocking them is because they hadn't yet understood, as they should have, that he was Messiah. There was no fooling around. They were the fools, but Jesus was not fooling around. Come to the point where you recognize the word that you know. This is your field of study. Where you have spent your entire life in the Torah, understanding the prophetic words that have been given by the Holy Spirit. This is your day to remember your way, the way of truth. And so... The clothes are put down in the roadway. They are put upon the beast of burden as an exercise, if you would, of honor. 
It says that as he went, many spread their clothes now on the road. They're creating a path. The path that God has created for us is the robe of righteousness that we have been draped in. It's his robe. The reason that we are able to take that highway to heaven is because of the robe of righteousness that literally has been custom made for us through a savior that literally exchanged garb. He gave us the wardrobe of heaven and he took on the wardrobe of humanity for us. And God, his father, commended him. This is my beloved son in whom I am so well pleased. He would tell the disciples to listen to him the interaction with his father in prayer, in the garden yet to come, so united. But this spreading happened on the roadway, and it says, then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, it really is not as broad as your mind may be seeing, at least not from the evidence of me going there personally and seeing it. It's very interesting, their terminology. Mount Moriah, we're looking, we're trying to think it's gonna be like Everest, you know? Oxygen depletion, you know, we're gonna need yaks to get us up there. It's different. It's a different mindset, different qualification. They, they look at elevation, but we, we think of it differently. And so this approach right now coming from Bethany, Bethphage right now, it does seem to be accurate in it being about a two-mile course. So when does it become city? Well, that's the interesting part because in the temple area and that surrounding area, as well as that valley called the Kidron Valley and the brook that flows through it, it's almost like nothing that we could imagine. It's not like something that we would forge with a boat. It's almost like you could jump right over it or lift up your robe and kind of wash your feet in the process of crossing it from what we see. And so when we try to determine on the ascent what qualifies when in this two-mile area would the multitudes have been forming, and then ultimately how do we get them in through the eastern gate? It's kind of something that our imagination just has to presume, not sure on that one. But as I was trying to cite in the beginning, if this were an inaugural parade and you've been to Washington, D.C., or you ever looked at a picture from the Capitol to the White House is about two miles long, a little more than two miles long. If the road were straight and not on ascent, and it's coming from Bethany, passing Bethphage, and moving down right now on descent, somewhere within that two-mile area, the multitudes are forming and doing this. There would be not only a buzz, there would be trees that would be waving. And they would be waving probably not necessarily because of a breeze coming in, though I wouldn't doubt one coming in. It's from the masses of people that would be forming in this event of pageantry, that from their heart, they literally are acknowledging, this is our king. 
we see that when, as this is happening, as the clothes are being spread, then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude, there you go, multitude, not a few, not just family, friends, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God. So now there's going to be the band. It's going to be a singing band with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. And this is their song saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is a song that's going to now send shivers, if you would, up the spines of those who are rather spineless in what they've tried to do. And they are. They're powerful in position, but they are, if you would, spineless right now. They know that they're in a very big dilemma of the tribute that the multitudes are giving and ultimately what they have done to conspire against the Lord. And now their fear to carry out ultimately what they had planned. And the Lord in, is not able to simply cavalierly accept their cowardice. This provocation which is of God and ultimately by the tenacity of the Lord himself realizing that within one week he will suffer inscrutable pain unlike any suffering that any man has ever gone through at any time or ever would, this is what his tenacity will lead him to do. In this, he's not disguised. He is actually unveiled as Messiah, according to the book of Daniel, according to Zechariah. He is Messiah. He is the prince to come. He is the one that was foretold in Isaiah 700 years before who came on a donkey in the womb of his mother. You realize that as Mary was moving in accordance of obedience to governance, she was with child. It was him. They were on a beast of burden. It was pretty awesome to see that even in advance of a second time of being on a beast of burden, he is in control. Pretty awesome. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Sounds kind of like a stanza from when the shepherds were tending their sheep and hearing the song of heaven from the angels. Some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, teacher, Rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. By the way, that would have been a slap in their face too, or a prediction on the method by which they would have sought to demise Jesus. Stoning was the means by capital offenders to be executed. It wasn't a cross. And so it's interesting that the Lord would say, these very stones, if I silent these guys, they're going to be singing out. Those stones that you would want to put in your hands and take me outside this city would be singing as you were trying to launch them from your hands. 
And so it's very interesting. There's not the talk of the cross because the Lord's aware of ultimately how he will be turned over. See, that's going to be the second part of checkmate. Is the secondary means by which he will be executed from the perspective of a Gentile community and the Jewish people saying, let his blood be upon us as they see that Pilate will wash his hands and it will be that which ultimately leads to another prophecy that will be heard by the Jewish people when he says, it was in the house of my friends that I received these wounds. That's yet to be heard by the risen Savior who will utter it at a time in which the tribulation has begun. These stones would immediately cry out. This is what we know. In verse 41, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. We had Pastor Carl tell us yesterday that this began what would be considered the blindness that would be imposed upon the Jewish people, because you didn't see me then, which was obvious, you shall not see me now. But there will be a people that shall, the Gentiles. The Gentiles who will be used as provocateurs to why the Jewish people are contending with a faith in which they claim the very one whom they rejected historically as a nation. And why do they love us? Who are these guys? Carl was classic in that. They can't understand the love of God through a people that they would call Gentiles and ones who bear the name of the one whom they rejected historically. Gee, why? Why? Why would God do this through this whom you say is our Messiah, Jesus, the love of God? Eyes still blind, but their hearts are being touched because of the evidence of us seeing God and conveying the heart of God, no matter what they disbelieve about God, it's compelling. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build up an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. This actually occurs about 40 years from this event. When the close of this week takes place, when the crucifixion has been satisfied, when the resurrection has been proven, then they have about 40 years before Titus will come in and rout Jerusalem, take it down to the ground. That's why Jesus said concerning the disciples, don't get too excited about those rocks. They're nice, but they're all coming down. Every single one of them. They won't be left in place. You'll not even recognize this facility any longer. You're going to have to look further ahead and you're going to have to be wiser with regard to where you put your emphasis on the structure or on the temple, which is you. You will be that temple. That's why there's something very interesting about us. He's made us mobile temples. 
It's why your ambassadorial ship, that thing that makes you cruise to distant lands and oceans or even just across the parking lot, is important to the Lord because you are a traveling temple in the residency of the Holy Spirit within you. This did come to pass. Jesus said it himself. Second Peter confirmed it as one of the things in which the Spirit of God had given evidence of it, and Jesus spoke it. It actually was historically fulfilled. In verse 43, And then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. So an important division right now of understanding what's taking place. He made it to the Temple Mount. That closed off actually in verse 39. That's all we hear. We don't hear anything about the dispatch of, okay, people, head, okay, get back to your, get back to your business. Everybody head home now. Pick up your litter, please. Do that as a civil ordinance on behalf of Rome and us, your high priest. Take care of the things we need to do. There's nothing that we see. We see this as a fade out right now. The last point that we're to remember is the challenge that the Pharisees had about Messiah being pronounced by the people. And they're not shutting up. Shut them up! If I do that, those rocks that you want to use against me, they're going to sing. You ever handled a singing rock before? They're awesome, but they'll take your ears with you. And so there's a pause here because we move into the contemplation of the Lord. The day will settle as he moves about the city. There's no ruckus that we know of being recorded. It's almost as though it just gently vaporizes into only the pageantry that took place to make a presumption on the Pharisees of what they needed to do in order that the word of the Lord comes to pass on the day in which the sacrifice of the Lamb of God represented in the feast would take place. If the Passover is taking place within the close of this week, Jesus must be presented as the sacrifice of the Passover, the Lamb of God. That's why indecisiveness is unacceptable. Make your decision for me or against me. But on the given day of the Passover, I am the sacrifice of God, your Father, my Father. That's the point that you need to see. And so when it then moves into what we see as the weeping over Jerusalem, this very likely is the sunset moment. He's come out of the city and he turns around to review that in the setting of the sun, he's been rejected. He knows what's going to happen. So either in the passage from the city in which pageantry led him to the temple and he moved perhaps around and he in fact took notice of what he will then take on the next day which is the corruption within the temple, that would be the next day, he's having a sunset moment. And in his sunset moment, he's 
crying. Jesus wept. He's not weeping on his mule. Kings don't do that. Or as Schwarzenegger would say, don't be a girly man. He's not weeping on his triumphal entry. He is in regalia. He is not apologizing for being king. The temple that he's moving towards, very much akin to, likened to Solomon's, who had the Mediterranean Easter lilies or the Mediterranean lilies that were as diadems, that were on Jachin and Boaz, those temple columns pointed up to heaven, as we talked about last week. Different than these, the trumpeting lilies. I like the picture. One represented, crown him with many crowns, and the other, sound the trumpet, he's coming. I like the picture of them. They're both beautiful flowers. But this is kind of a New Testament version of what the Old Testament portrayed as the coming king. Crown him with many crowns, the diadems of the Mediterranean lily. So Jesus is having a sunset devotional moment in which the tears flow, understanding what is before him, but realizing with tenacity he will forge on that he might be the savior of the world. The cleansing in verse 45 and 47 through 48 takes place actually on the next day as he moves once again from the mount, probably another two-mile walk, into the streets of Jerusalem, up to the temple. He'll teach there, but he'll also do a shellacking that will do what? Prompt once again. we got to get rid of this guy. Okay, so he's threatened us with singing rocks. What else can we do? So they conspire to bring in one of their guys. Judas is on the scene. 